0: John Knox, the the great reformer of Scotland, the man who once was a slave in a French galley, but rose to stand against powerful queens. He was actually a pretty small man. Knox was often ill, and he was frequently filled with fears and doubts. Who isn't? So how did one so weak in body and mind accomplish so much? Well, Knox was, was strong in the spirit, so they say. For he was submissive to the will of God. And he cared more for the glory of Christ than that of his own. It begs the question, though, at what cost? What did he have to lose? In his lifetime, Knox was denounced by regents, by queens, by councils, ridiculed. This this is a good nickname, Knox the Knave. He was outlawed and forbidden to preach by the Archbishop of St. Andrews. And even had orders issued that he'd be shot on sight if he failed to comply. Knox, however, though, what do we know? He didn't comply. Years later, a would-be assassin fired a shot through a window and knocked his home of Edinburgh. Thankfully, he narrowly missed his mark. Still, Knox preached. So what of his legacy since his death in 1572? So once he died, what happened? Did they, you know, kind of gather around him and say, well, actually, we kind of missed that guy. No, they didn't, believe it or not. Knox's living for the glory of Christ also meant that 140 years later after Knox's death, the English Parliament, they condemned his books to public burning. In 1739, George Whitfield was ridiculed for preaching doctrine borrowed from Knox. Moderns, they dismiss him. They label him a misogynist for his treatise against female monarchs and for his unflinching stand against the dreaded Mary, Queen of Scots. As he denounced her sin and he called her to repentance. For Knox, imitating Christ meant that not even 400 years after his death in 1972 could he make it on a commemorative Scottish postage, postage stamp as he was deemed an inappropriate subject. Hmm. Knox's early earthly resting place was even relegated to obscurity as the Edinburgh Town, uh, town Council moved it, and this just kind of stinks, under a variously unnumbered parking spot. They couldn't even find his original gravesite. I'm going to put a, put a parking lot right over his grave. But if you ever visit Edinburgh, you're looking for just the, the, the parking lot right outside St. Giles Cathedral. Much like faithless Israel resented Jeremiah's prophecy of doom and destruction for her harlotry against the Lord, so for the most part, Scotland has resented the life and ministry of John Knox. And this is what happens when you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This is what happens. There's always a cost. I mean, they built a parking lot over his grave. How's that for hostility? Living your life in service to Christ means death threats, assassination attempts, and a parking lot over your grave. That's what that means. And Peter begins in verse 21 by saying that this is what you have been called to, though. This is what you've been called to. Jesus suffered, he says, for you. We were set apart to suffer as Christians. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The focus of the Christian is to ever be like Christ. And this goes back to the own, or the so, or the therefore. At conversion, Christians are called out of darkness into marvelous light. As God's elect, his chosen people, heirs of his blessing, Peter says Christians have been called by God to suffer unjustly. So the question then is why? Why are we called to suffer? Because such suffering was the part of the life of Christ. The New Testament also affirms this suffering as a calling for the Christians seven other times. All Christians are called to suffer with Christ before they are glorified with Him. And this is the Christian vocation, the Latin voco for calling. To this we have been called. When God calls, when He calls you or He calls me to a task, we are to obey I say it to Virgus all the time, buddy, you've got to obey. We know that, but when we're called, we must therefore obey. Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who were called according to his purpose. R.C. Sproul comments that in suffering, there is purpose, and this biblical truth is perhaps the hardest to embrace. Think for a moment about the life of Job. When Job's suffering came upon him, he said, Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Scripture says that Job was was blameless, and he was upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. And in one afternoon, all of Job's prosperity, ten children, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, all gone. Now God could have easily told Satan that He doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. But what do we know? He didn't do that. For his own glory, God used Job to gain an easy victory over Satan. And as Job's pain intensified, his own wife even told him, curse God and die. And how does Job lovingly respond to his bride? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Even as suffering continued, Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. The Lord used the suffering of Job to show that in his heart, God himself is more highly esteemed than any possession or any family member. Despite his misfortunes, Job does not relinquish his confidence in the sovereignty of the Almighty. No matter the cost. And he lost a lot, I think we would say, by earthly standards. Even better than Job, though, Peter tells us that Christ himself is our example. The Greek root he used for the example here is grapho. And what's cooler, in my opinion, about that word, that Peter chose to use that root, was that it was originally used to describe a template that you would trace. You would trace out the lettering so that you could carefully reproduce it. So here Peter's language demonstrates that Christ is the template we are to trace. How neat is that? That every detail of his character is to, be, is to be imitated and drawn into the very fibers of our being. So don't think Jackson Pollock, that's virtually impossible. That is, impos- that is impossible. But think Richard Scarry, who always did his sketches on tracing paper, and then from there he traced them onto frosted acetate. And I love Richard Scarry. With Christ as the original, our lives are to be carefully, our lives are to carefully trace the details of His character, precisely and exactly—not 99.9 percent, not infallible, but, but with precision, so that the watching world sees even the slightest resemblance of our Savior Himself. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. On our behalf, Christ acted in our place. Perfectly obeying the will of the Father in the face of the most difficult opposition, without complaint. His blood purchased the grace to free us from the bondage of sin. And in doing that, he left us an example to imitate. An example of the kind of life that is perfectly pleasing in God's sight. Who better than the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit than to write these words about us following Christ's example. This is the same man who was there when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane who was rebuked by Jesus when he raised his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, who was on the receiving end of Jesus' piercing look when he denied that he knew the Lord while he was in the house of the high priest. It gets better. Peter knew about the soldiers mocking and beating Jesus while he was awaiting his various trials. Peter knew about the awful ridiculing and mocking of Jesus by Herod and his soldiers. He knew about the dreadful flogging of the Lord before Pilate. He knew about the awful heels, the awful wounds, made in the body of his master by those dreadful whips with their jagged pieces of bone and metal tied into the end. So you could say in the midst of the worst, Peter had distanced himself from Jesus. But here we see that in, in his later years, Peter came to understand that we, we were called to suffer because Jesus suffered for us. And suffer Peter would as he was sentenced by Nero to death. Death by crucifixion, nonetheless, in Rome. And what did Peter do? He submitted to that decree, but he said, I just have one plea. Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he did not think that he was worthy to die in the same manner of his Savior. So brothers and sisters, we rejoice this morning because while we, we will live a life of suffering, that is our calling. Praise be to God that it's not our fate. Jesus told his disciples that no servant is greater than his master. And Peter is saying that that it is commendable to accept suffering with patience because in the first place we've been called to that very thing. That's what we've been called to as Christians. We acknowledge that Christ suffered and that He died on our behalf, but we do not understand in what way He is our example. We're unable to perform those mighty miracles Jesus performed, and we cannot suffer the same agony He endured in Gethsemane and at Calvary. Therefore, we follow Christ not in the degree of anguish and pain, but in the manner in which he endured suffering. Because we know God knows the injustice, and he's called us to face it. So as we're set apart to suffer, our second point this morning is that in Christ, we have a sinless Savior to imitate. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God's requirement of all people is perfect sinlessness even when under the most intense pressure to sin. A requirement which has been fulfilled by Christ is an example and an encouragement to us. Jesus is the only person who ever lived who was utterly sinless. And no one else in the history of the world can measure up to his righteous standards. So there's a vast difference between the sufferings of the Lord and any pain that we're called upon to endure. But our example in suffering is one who is totally innocent and free from sin. In Christ, we have a literally perfect example without comparison, without debate. No Twitter poll is necessary. And that's why the sermon title is simply, None Greater. There's not one greater example than Jesus Christ himself. Borrowing from Isaiah 53, Peter uses these verses to model to us how to show, how to imitate the character of Christ in the midst of suffering. Rather than downloading a new app or subscribing to a daily devotional YouTube channel, what does Peter do? He meditates on and borrows the language from the passage we read earlier in the service. The great song of the suffering servant. And why does he do this? To indicate to us the sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus personifies sinlessness and innocence. And because of this innocence, his suffering is completely unjust. And for us here this morning, that means that the contrast between Christ and ourselves is so much greater. Because when we look at the suffering the Savior undertook, and not just the physical suffering, but for a moment, think about the emotional toll from all the times His disciples, His friends, misunderstood His mission. I mean, how often are our feelings hurt by those we consider close friends for not liking your MySpace post, or from seeing the read receipt on a text message you sent, and they never replied. We're reminded that our Lord was perfectly innocent in every way. And yet he suffered physically, emotionally. The sufferings of Jesus were not as a result of his sin, though. And he did not deserve to suffer at all. He committed no detrimental sin against God whatsoever, nor against man. And yet no one has suffered as deeply as he did. And he still advanced towards Calvary as a lamb that has led to the slaughter. Not because of his own faults, but the sins of others our sins, your sins, my sins. So when we bear witness to his suffering, no one in this room can rightly object to suffering when we look to the example Jesus has set before us. Therefore, sinners, it should come as no surprise when we're harshly and unjustly treated. It shouldn't surprise us. I don't know why it does every single time. And we take to heart Peter's exhortation to follow in the steps of the example left to us by Christ we should also we should also adopt Peter's method of turning to God's word in those moments when our obedience to Christ seems like it's only making matters worse we open the bible and we, and we meditate on the character of Christ we make him our great study you give yourself to the study of Christ himself as he's found in the passages in the passages of scripture i promise you You don't really get much like Jesus from reading Breitbart. You don't really get much like Jesus from reading People magazine, if people still read that. You don't get much like Jesus binge-watching the entire series of Friends for the ninth time. You'll get more like Jesus by attending to the Scriptures, to the way they constantly drive you to consider the one who endured such opposition from sinful men, who endured the cross and scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Don't run this race alone. Consider Christ, so that you too can run with perseverance, as the race is promised to be hard. Go outside. You'll also find that the race is costly. Peter then directs our attention to that divine example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Through it all, the arrests, the trial, the accusations, the interrogations, the beatings, the mockings, from Gethsemane to Golgotha, Jesus never spoke one word of anger. Not one word of resentment. Peter depicts the patience and endurance of Jesus and suggests that we follow his example. Easier said than done, though, am I right? I mean, even Peter rejected They reacted to Ananias' orders, to those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Peter invoked God's judgment as he replied, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Hmm. Then there's Jesus, who as he's taking on some of his last breath on earth. What does he do? He prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus prevailed over his enemies, not by trickery, not by deception, not by blackmail, but by truth. So too, all believers are called to persevere and prevail by speaking the truth in love even to those who seek to do you harm. Jesus' very, very first sermon was met with rage in an attempt to throw him off the cliff at Nazareth City Hill. Welcome to your entire life of public ministry, Jesus. The wicked simply hate the truth. They hate it. But despite their best attempts, Jesus never retaliated because he knew that he had to take upon himself the curse that was resting on the human race and the consequences of man's sin. And for this reason, Jesus entrusted himself and his cause to the righteous judgment of his heavenly Father. Therefore, we're similarly called to reckon by faith that though the wicked may afflict us, the God of heaven holds you and me as objects, objects of his affection, and he accepts us and his beloved son. And before we move into our last point, I just want to encourage those of you here this morning whose current circumstances, while horrific or extreme, wouldn't be how you would characterize them. You might not be in the midst of terrible suffering. You might not be suffering for really even all that difficult, unjust treatment. Rather, it's more commonplace and it's more familiar. And there's just no way to bring about justice this side of the new heavens and the new earth. For instance, there were elders at our church back in Charlotte who could not communicate regarding church matters with their work email from fear of being fired. Their faith was a point of contention. And maybe that's someone here this morning. So what do you do? Or maybe you're the only Christian in your family and your parents and siblings think your faith in Jesus is stupid. And every time the holidays come around, instead of looking forward to seeing your family, you're filled with anxiety. You're met with hostility. And you look for every reason to avoid the gathering. What do you do? Your old friends from college, they come to town. And your commitment to Jesus means that you simply won't go to the places they will go. And you won't indulge in the things they'll indulge in. And so now you're seeing pictures of them together on social media. And you're wondering why they didn't invite you. What do you do? Peter says, you remember the the example of Jesus Christ in whose steps you are now being called to walk. Like Him, you must entrust yourself to God who judges justly. And when you are reviled, you don't revile in return. You love in reply to mockery. You serve in response to injustice. You show kindness when others show you only hostility. It's hard. And you do this because you seek not the approval of man, There's too many of those people. But to please the Son of Man, because that's what He did. That's what Jesus did. And if you want to be like Him, you seek to please the Father. Jesus calls each of us to take up our cross and follow Him. And I believe this is what He had in mind. Obedience to Jesus means you might not ever be popular. might even be hated. Or worse, canceled and then made into a meme. But in the end, you know and will see the smile of Jesus. And what sweet recompense that is. So lastly, as Christians, we were set apart and called to suffer as we follow in the steps of our Savior. And therefore, we must set our sights on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Jesus is is far more than our example. He's our sin bearer. This is the heart of the gospel. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and that word translated for tree, it can also mean cross. So Peter's showing off, by borrowing from an Old Testament idiom in Deuteronomy 21 here. The fact, however, that Christ bore our sins means God the Father counted our sins against Christ. And the Lord has laid on Him the inequity of us all. The Father thought of our sins as belonging to Christ, belonging to His Son. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin and then punished Him with that anger against sin, separation from God, and consequent death, which we deserve, not Jesus, we deserve that death. And in this way, Christ was a substitute for us who are burdened by sin. Voluntarily, he took himself, he took upon himself the curse that was pronounced upon us. And by his death, what did he do? He removed it. So if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And friend, this, this is the gospel, Jesus. Jesus is that gospel. When he died on the cross, his death was a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body so that our sins might be destroyed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, redeemed from the guilt and penalty of your sin when you place your faith in him. So, what then is the purpose of Christ's sacrificial death? What's the purpose? Peter says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So by his death, Jesus has set us free from that bondage of sin. And so we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is the greatest news of all. It's the cross where God supplies the grace we need that we may grow in the imitation of Jesus. The cross transforms our present suffering. Jesus' death means that not only... He dealt with your sin, and not only did He deal with your guilt, but His death, it renovates your heart, and it makes you a new creature. He died that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died not just for your forgiveness, but for your holiness. Not just for our justification, but for our sanctification too. Not just to satisfy divine justice, but that our hardened hearts, yours and mine, could be made new that they could be transformed from glory into glory and that of his likeness. Because of the blood of Jesus, nothing can stop us from that eternal home. And as the song says, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. But did you guys know that it kept going, that there's more to that song? And praise be to God that we can continue along. Now by this I'll overcome, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now by this I'll reach my home because of the blood of Jesus. So in closing, I want to revisit John Knox. I believe that Knox himself would have likely been been little troubled by the neglect and by the hostility from those who opposed his convictions and what he stood for. Why? Well, if history shows us anything, it's that one of the most essential qualities in truly great men of God is that they care far more for the glory of Jesus Christ than that of themselves. But as we learned earlier, there's a cost that comes to those faithful followers of Christ. There's a cost. One only need to turn to the words of the Savior himself to understand how Knox gained such preeminence, but became so disliked by so many, even after he died. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and what does Jesus say? Therefore the world hates you. Jesus could have said, the world will ignore you. The world will dislike you. The world might misunderstand you. But Jesus chose his words perfectly. And there was a lot of purpose behind him saying, no, actually the world hates you. The world hated Christ and so hates his elect. Too few followers of Christ are willing to have the entire world hate them. But not John Knox. And God used him to bring about that reformation in Scotland. Knox knew how to suffer well for Christ, and so too must we. We suffer well for Jesus when we learn to live our lives seeking the pleasure not of the world, but of the one. That's a big O, capitalized. We live for the well-done, good and faithful servant of our master, not as passive appeasers or servants to the woke mob, Not for the approval of peers, but for the praise of God and Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn to suffer well for Jesus by learning to live in the imitation of our sinless Savior. This is what Jesus is like. When wounded by others, he loved them, he served them. And that too is what you all are called to. When we set our sights on the cross when we cling to Christ and Him crucified, crying out to God to give you what the Savior's blood has purchased for you, I promise you will not be refused. Cry out to Christ who was crucified and who now lives and reigns for you. There's grace for you in Christ. He will bear you up and praise be to God that He will indeed bring you home. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us When we rather than repaying evil for good, Lord, when we think more highly of ourselves and repay evil for evil, Oh how we all desperately desire to be loved by the world. Forgive us for being like the world because we know that by taking a stand, by standing apart from it, it will cost us, and we don't like even the slightest thought of discomfort, let alone the thought of being mocked or scorned or hated. Forgive us for altering our lifestyles because the opinion of our peers concerns us more than glorifying and honoring you. Help us, Father, to see what Christ has done, how he suffered and how he bled and how he died for us. Help us to not be like those followers of Baal and stop limping between two opinions. Help us to follow you, the Lord God. Help us to live for your praise, O Lord, by that grace which purchased through the cross so that we, as we decrease, Christ increases. Lord, and this brings about the eternal way to glory. Start with my heart, Father. For Jesus' sake, amen.